John chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and begin here. Verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> and Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. <clears throat> and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, and they have been done in God." If you, uh, you're taking notes this morning, I titled the message, Only One Way to Heaven. And there are three points I want to cover with you this morning. First, you must be born again, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, you must embrace God's plan, verses 4 through 8. And thirdly, you must trust Christ as your Savior, verses 9 through 21. You know, in 1508, the artist Michelangelo was commissioned on an endeavor which would take him the better part of four years to finish. He'd paint famous scenes from the Bible, nine of which were from the book of Genesis. He illustrated the creation story, Noah and his family, the flood, and at the heart of this massive piece is what is known as the creation of Adam and Eve. Perhaps you've seen it. It resides in the Sistine Chapel. It is an iconic portrayal where God is seen as he's reaching out and he's touching Adam. This painting, if you will, portrays God 
involved with his creation. No doubt it's an impressive painting. However, it leaves you with the sense that there's something else. There's something missing. You begin to see this piece and you go, within yourself, you begin, what about eternity? What about my mortality? What is it you have? And there's this emptiness that there are no answers to. But eventually, you have to answer those questions. They begin to nag you. And this morning, we're going to meet a man who gets the answers to life's most important question. What about heaven? Am I going there? You know, and as you look at this piece, if you're a Jew, that's where it ends. That's where that story ends because they don't have the New Testament. They don't believe the New Testament. So for them, that's all they have. And here in verses 1 through 3 again, we have you must be born again. And let me set the scene here. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 23, it tells us that this was the Passover. This was a festival that, that commemorated God's miraculous deliverance from the house of bondage, from Egypt. And every male Jew over the age of 20 was required to attend. So you can imagine Jerusalem is inundated with travelers from all over the world. It is bustling at the seams. Now, as you go through the Gospel of John, you can't help but notice that he does something a little bit different than the other Gospel writers. Every time Jesus performs a miracle, he always links it to a lesson. He says in verse 23 that many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And keep this in mind as we move through the passage. And here in verse 1, we have the individual. We have Nicodemus. It says here, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus represents tradition. He represents the law. And he represents religion to the nation. He comes, as it were, with all the veneer of prestige, preeminence, and power. And Jesus is going to upend his world and demonstrate that, you know what, Nicodemus? You ain't cutting it, man. You're falling short. And that his perception of the eternal isn't correct. That he needs to be born again. And please notice, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's a ruler of the Jews. Now, some historians say this Nicodemus may have been related to a very distinguished Jewish family. In 63 BC, when the Jews were at war with the Romans, Aristobulus, a Jewish leader, sent a certain Nicodemus as an ambassador to Pompey, the Roman emperor. It is said that just before the fall of Jerusalem, Gurion uh, negotiated a, a deal with the garrison, and his father was, in fact, Nicodemus. It may be well that both of these individuals were somehow related to the Nicodemus in our story. If this is true, this was one of the most wealthiest families in all Jerusalem. Nicodemus, we are told, is a Pharisee, one who is devoted to the law. Now, the scribes interpreted and regulated the law. The Pharisees, however, were de they devoted their lives in keeping the law. 
Uh, for example, you know, on the Sabbath, uh, every Jew was not allowed, they were allowed to bear a burden. Well, the Pharisees just, they even defined it even more. For example, you couldn't carry anything uh, more than the weight of a dry fig. Or you couldn't carry any more wine that you can mix in a goblet. Or you couldn't carry enough milk in your mouth for one swallow. And on and on and on it went. That's how they defined a burden. And we're also told that at this time in history, there were several thousand Pharisees roaming Jerusalem, but they never exceeded 6,000. And to become a Pharisee, you needed to be sworn in by three other Pharisees. The word Pharisees or Pharisee means the separated ones. And what they separated themselves was the ordinary way of life so that they can keep every detail of the law. Now, the Pharisees, for all intents and purposes, uh, had the best intentions in keeping and preserving the law. You know, they observed over 600 plus laws. They observed the Mishnah. They observed the Torah. And again, in, in human terms, this was commendable. But by the time we see Nicodemus, the, the Pharisees had become a dead fraternity, if you will. It was dead orthodoxy. It was lifeless. And amongst all that, notice he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was a leading member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. It was a council made up of 70 of the most brilliant minds. The Sanhedrin had religious jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. And one of their chief duties was to deal and examine anyone who is suspected of being a false prophet. Which is kind of interesting to me because if that's the case, why is Nicodemus visiting Jesus at night? He saw something different in him. Yet in the center of all this, we find this man, Nicodemus. In verse 10, Jesus is going to say to him, aren't you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? What's he saying? Well, in that day, there were several prominent teachers But at the pinnacle, at the top of the list, sat Nicodemus. Parallel to none. He was top dog. If you wanted to sit under a teacher, that's the man who you wanted to sit under. He was a teacher in the whole nation. And what God does for us is present this highly decorated religious man. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong, man. You have fame, you have power, you have prestige, but you don't have anything at all. And unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes this distinction for our benefit because there are those who think that, you know what, if I become a little bit more religious or I become more pious, that somehow uh, I will find more favor in the eyes of God. That somehow our good deeds will outweigh the bad. And notice here what Nicodemus says here in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's the we? Nicodemus. What are we talking about? What do you mean we? So basically what he's saying here is, I'm not a lone wolf. There are others like me. Maybe some of the, uh, the Pharisees. Perhaps some of the Sanhedrin. Maybe even Joseph of Arimathea. 
They may have been discussing all the things that Jesus had been teaching and the signs he had been performing. And I think, I wonder what that was like for Nicodemus and for his peers as they began to discuss those things. And I could just imagine the questions that were being hurled at Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I was at the wedding at Cana. I saw the water turn to wine. I'm seeing the blind. Abraham here was blind. He could see now. What's going on? Nicodemus, the deaf, they're hearing. And I could just see Nicodemus sitting there perplexed because after all, he is the authority. And yet, he doesn't have the answers. He's struggling. And I'm sure he's thinking to himself, I've never read, I've never heard of anything like this ever in my life. Nothing historically. He's coming up short. Perhaps he's passed by that, that blind beggar for several years. And he walks by one day and that beggar ain't there anymore because he could see now. Or perhaps he's seen Jesus touching a leper. And that's something a Jew would never do. Touch a leper? He's diseased, man. And as that leper gets up, he walks by. Nicodemus leans over and that, that guy, that leper, has the skin of a newborn baby. I think Nicodemus, he's seen things in a radical way. And they're all filled with wonder. How can these things be? Again, it's my opinion that when Nicodemus and his peers started to hear the things Jesus was doing, and I, I don't doubt that they themselves had to see it for themselves. Why? Because curiosity is overwhelming, isn't it? I got to see. I have to see it for myself. And I think along with his peers, they noticed the, the, the miracles, and only these things could be done if God is in this man's life. These are real miracles. He knows these people. You know, I'm reminded of Andre Cole. Andre Cole has kind of made his mission in life to discredit magicians and find out their tricks. And then he heard a quote from a doctor one time. He says, you know, Jesus, you know, he's probably the greatest magician of all. And that struck him. He says, you know what? Let me see if I can go ahead and discredit Jesus. So he went out and he was able to recreate some of the miracles. But then he started to realize that Jesus was, didn't have the technology of our day. He was in the wilderness. That was one thing. And then he started to realize for the, to recreate some of these miracles, he needed at least three semis and a full staff of people. And then he also realized if anybody would, would have said he was a magician, Judas would have certainly said something, wouldn't he? And as he began to ponder these things, he realized Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to faith. Pretty heavy. And I don't take Nicodemus as an ignorant man. You don't get to become part of the Sanhedrin because you're stupid. I think this man knows what's going on. And Nicodemus and those with him, they reasoned and came to the conclusion that only God could be with him. And then we're told that he came to Jesus at night. And it's interesting to me uh, because some have said that Nicodemus came at night out of fear of the Jews. Now, is that possible? Sure, it's possible, but I don't think that was the case. First of all, Nicodemus, being a teacher during the Passover, would have been extremely busy. So it only make more sense to have an audience at night. 
Secondly, when he says we know, that probably means that in their discussions amongst themselves, they felt that the best candidate to, to talk to Jesus would have been Nicodemus. Because after all, you know, if, if we're in the public eye and Jesus began to have questions that we don't have any answers to, this may affect us negatively. And thirdly, in a private conversation, your conversation wouldn't be as guarded, would it? You can speak more freely. And I think there's wisdom in all of this. So I don't think he comes to Jesus at night out of fear. Now notice, it doesn't tell us where they met or if his disciples were even there. We kind of assume that because John has given us his account. Now again, I wonder what that was like for Nicodemus as he made his way through the night to go see Jesus. Here comes this renowned teacher, no doubt highly respected. He's accustomed to where where people would bow down and honor him. He's going to go see a carpenter. And then he enters the presence of one who is like no other. He says, you, you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And notice Jesus doesn't hesitate and he cuts right through all the pleasantries and he gets right to the point. And Jesus says to him here in verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, folks, did you catch it? Because I didn't hear the question that Nicodemus asked. He didn't say, hey, uh, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Or what's my greatest spiritual need? That question is never asked. Why? I'll tell you why. Verse 25 of the previous chapter, he says, And he had no need that anyone should testify man, for he knew what was in man. He knew the greatest need Nicodemus had. He knows our hearts. And he knew Nicodemus' heart. You know, it reminds me of Alcibiades. He's a spoiled Athenian man who is a companion of Socrates. And every now and then uh, he'd break out and say, Socrates, I hate you. He says, well, why do you hate me? He says, because every time I meet you, you let me know who I am. It's like Jesus. He knows exactly who I am. He knows who you are. He knows what's in your heart. And so Nicodemus... You don't have to ask the real question. I already have the answer. Here's a man probably in his alone time, in his moments, where he reflects on his commitment to his religiosity and his devotion to the law, where he becomes overwhelmed with this feeling of being hollow, of feeling empty. Yet he sees Jesus who comes on the scene and, and he's a man speaking the truth of God. And it touches him to the core of his being. He sees lives being touched. He sees the miracles. And he wants to know, what am I missing? And Jesus addresses the longing in his heart. He says, you must be born again. Most assuredly, he says here in the King, New King James. And in the King James, he says, verily, verily. We pick this up in verses 3, verses 5, and verse 11. It's interesting because it's not a, a Greek translation uh, of the word. It's actually a, an Aramaic translation. And it's a participle of the verb meaning to confirm. In other words, you know, Sam's up here doing worship. And we, 
you know, there's a song that touches us and we go, Amen. Or someone prays and we go, Amen. Except Jesus does it a little bit different. He, he's, he starts the beginning of his statement with, Amen. Or he confirms and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you. Or verily, verily, I say to you. What is he saying? I'm the authority. Nicodemus. The statements I'm saying, I'm the authority. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's living in darkness. Isn't it interesting that he actually came to Jesus in the dark and then he steps into the light? Light has come into the world, as uh, verse 19 tells us, and Jesus is revealing to this teacher the darkness he's been living in. It's a rude awakening. Now, some translations will say born from above or born anew. And most of our modern translations will say born again. It's the Greek word anathon. And it comes in three different senses. It's, it means from the beginning. It's a, it's a radical change. Or it can mean, again, like, like a second chance. Or thirdly, it can mean from above. There is not one English word that can encapsulate this one word. However, I tend to lean towards being born anew. Well, why do you say that? Well, because if Jesus said born from above, then, then Jesus or Nicodemus would have said something different. He says, can I re-enter my mother's womb? This whole idea of being born anew. Now, this idea of rebirth and regeneration was not something new to those folks in the ancient world. When a man from another faith, for example, converted over to Judaism... Uh, he was regarded as being reborn. As a matter of fact, the rabbis believed that uh, if a man converts to Judaism, he is like a newborn baby. They viewed the change to be so radical that they believed and argued that a man was so righteous and in good standing that he could even marry his own mother or sister. That's what they believed. Now, Greek mythology is replete with stories of living, suffering, and the rising of the gods. The Phrygians, at the conclusion of their initiation process, would feed the initiate milk like a newborn baby. The Terabolum had an interesting sermon. You might like this one. They place a person in the pit, cover the pit with a, a lattice grate. Then they would take a bull, place him over the pit, slaughter the animal, and the blood would drain into the pit. The person in the pit would begin to lather himself as he's take, like he's taking a bath. And the, here's a picture that you have to place in your mind. As they opened the grate, this person would come out and it was a picture of a birth. And the idea is that they were reborn for all eternity. The problem was, like everything else and every movement, they were never transformed. They were never born again. They were still living in darkness. In other words, their lives didn't demonstrate a life of genuine repentance and growth. Now, the phrase born again has been misused and abused through the years, right? You probably, you know, you, you know that. You know, you have celebrities and rap artists who say they're born again, and yet you look at their lyrics and it's laced with profanity. Or it's an election year. Well, everybody's born again, right? Gallup poll has indicated that those who claim to be Christians... Three in ten don't believe that Satan is a personal being. Six in ten 
couldn't correctly identify, you must be born again by Jesus saying this to Nicodemus. Folks, there is one kind of Christian, one who was born again, one who's been radically changed from the inside, one whose life reflects a dramatic change. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. If someone says they're a Christian and they're not born again, guess what? They are not a Christian. Nicodemus, the only way you can see the kingdom of God is you must be born into it. There's no rite of passage. You don't sign a church membership card. You're born into the kingdom. Now notice, we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. Nicodemus doesn't. If you ask people, are you born again? What's their response? Well, why? Why do I have to be born again? Why should I have to? Why do I have to accept Jesus Christ? Why, 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 why? Well, Nicodemus doesn't say that, does he? Nicodemus says, but how? He comes off being very sincere and at the very least receptive to the things Jesus is saying. He says, how? How can these things be? Are you born again? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? You say, you know what? This message offends me. This whole thing offends me. Hey, they're not my words. They're his words. Do yourself a favor and study his words. Because they're not mine. And if you're not born again, at the end of the service, we're going to give you an opportunity to do just that. Because if you're here and you don't know him, I guarantee you he's shedding the light right now. No doubt in my mind. Well, maybe you're thinking, I'll do it another day. You may not have it. There's no guarantee. You know, some say, well, we're all children of God. Nope. Read uh, the first chapter of John. We're not all children of God. You might say, well, for now, you know what? You're preaching to the choir. I'm born again. My question to you is, are you? Are you born again? Again, people have misused this term. You know, you know, for example, Larry Flint, the publisher of the pornographic magazine Hustler, he claims to be born again. He is quoted as saying, if it's love, it can't be wrong. He calls it clean sex. Jim Jones he made claims he was born again in what? He led hundreds to death. The scripture says that we need to examine ourselves, as 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, to see whether or not you and I are in the faith. So are you. And if you're a believer, are you sharing your faith? Or are you a closet Christian? Are you telling people and challenging them? Are you born again? Well, I don't like that term, it kind of offends people. Use biblical terms. Don't water down the Word of God. I need to hear the truth. I don't need a watered-down gospel. Well, isn't that the pastor's job? Yes, it is. It's, as a Christian, it's all our job. It's all our job. Our second point, you must embrace God's plan. Verses 4 through 8. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Notice he's, he's asking questions. He's not being sarcastic. He's asking the obvious. And obviously, people don't re-enter their mother's womb. I have six children. And, and guess what? I guarantee they ain't going back. <laughs> Ask my wife. She's going to make sure they ain't going back. 
And he's asking, how is this possible? How does this work? Do we have to experience birth all over again? And I think at that moment, Jesus leans down to him, pulls him in. And he says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's building on this previous point. He's adjusting the telescopic lens and he's making it clearer and clearer and clearer. He says to be born of water. Now, some would say he's referring to water baptism, as some commentators will say, but I disagree with that. And I have a problem with this interpretation. First of all, baptism is a response to repentance and we do it as obedience unto Christ. Second of all, baptism is a picture of death and resurrection, not birth. It's a picture of placing the old man in the grave and bringing up to the newness of life. Romans 6, 4 tells us this. Also, if baptism is conditional for salvation, then you'd have to take the thief off the cross. Or what about those, those, those people on their deathbeds? What do we do with them? So I, I disagree with that. I don't think uh, baptism is necessary for salvation. However, water is symbolic of cleansing. Ephesians 5.26, you husbands ought to know the scripture because it commands us as men to impart the word of God to our wives. Why? Because it has a cleansing effect. This is to cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So the word of God has a, a cleansing effect. John 15.3, Jesus says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Being born of water and the Spirit is further defined for us in the next verse. Notice verse 6. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, we had a physical birth. All of us were born out of our mother's womb. You know, there's blood. There's water there. And the spiritual birth is not like the physical, Jesus would say. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's physical. But folks, in order to get into the kingdom of God, a spiritual birth has to take place. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And I can only imagine at this point what Nicodemus's reaction at this point was. What? What are you talking about? And unfortunately, we can't see his reaction. But apparently, Jesus kind of, he sees it. Because he tells us in verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's seen, he's seen Nicodemus' response here. He says, don't, don't marvel. Don't marvel that you must be born again. And, and that word must in the Greek is emphatic. It's not a suggestion. Jesus is saying this event must take place in one's life to have eternal life. By the way, folks, we have no uh, part in the birthing process. It happens when we receive him. Uh, we're told in uh, John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received them, received him, excuse me, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. See, then he goes into to explain the dynamic. So we have no part in the birthing process. We believe. And here again, he explains the dynamic. Notice verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So is everyone. Everyone 
who is a believer is born of the Spirit. What's the adage? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So if you're born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to have the physical death, and then you're going to have the eternal death. Well, if you're born twice, you're going to die physically, but your soul will live eternally with God. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is you had a physical birth, but Nicodemus, the spiritual birth is of the greatest importance. It's the greatest thing you can ever do in your life. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And he begins to share with him the illustration of the wind. Again, here in verses 7 and 8, he says, Do not marvel, I said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I wonder as they're sitting there, and they're discussing if the wind began to pick up. And I could just see Nicodemus just looking around and, and he's looking at the effect of the wind and sees the trees going back and forth. And he says, you know, we sense its presence and we can see its effect. But folks, it would be foolish to say I don't believe in the wind simply because I can't see it. That's what he's trying to communicate to Nicodemus. Now, wind uh, has the same definition in the Hebrew and in the Greek. It's synonymous for wind, for breath. And for the spirit, it's immaterial, yet it's real. You know, I'm reminded of Adam's creation in the Garden of Eden. You know, God created Adam, but he was an inanimate object. Until what? Until God breathed into him and he became a living being. God had to breathe into him. And once Adam fell because of sin, he died spiritually. The scripture tells us that sin spread to all man through Adam and we need to be born anew. Jesus is addressing the problem that happened in the garden. And so is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, if you're born again, if you're truly born again, you will demonstrate a change. You're going to be different. You're going to experience a conviction in your life. You're not going to laugh at the same jokes. Your speech will change. Your outlook in life will be different. And what's interesting about what Jesus is saying is we can see a physical birth. I mean, I've seen all six of my kids, yet we can't see the spiritual. Why? Because it takes place in the heart. I can't see that. I've seen my kids born, but I can't see when it takes place here. That's the difference. And, you know, to me, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, as I sit up here, we will have an altar call, right? People will come up, they'll accept the Lord. Yet, I don't know who accepts the Lord. We just take it by faith. They come up here and accept the Lord. And then you have folks who will sit in the chair and they'll raise their hands and they'll pray. And then you have those who will just bow their heads and quietly pray. I can't see what's going on. But I trust that it's happening here. Because I can't see it. The wind blows where it wishes, and you cannot tell where it goes. Even though we can't see the spiritual birth take place, there's one thing we can see is fruit in their life. There should be evidence of a changed life. We've seen it here in Calvary Chapel. Folks have been freed from alcohol. They've been freed from drugs, pornography, bitterness, resentment. They've been changed by the Spirit of God. They're clothed in sane. The Spirit of God comes in and begins the regenerative process. You know, in, in Titus, 
I love this passage in Titus chapter three, verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness, what we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He begins the process. He cleans us up. It's not something we do. And he comes in and does the change. And that's our message to this dark world, isn't it? That Jesus has changed us by the power of his spirit. And folks, people are looking at your life. How are you living? Are you living in darkness or in light? What are people seeing? Are you one way at church? Or are you a different way at home or at work? Again, listen, I have six children at home. And guess what? All eyes are on dad. Is he the same at home as he is at church? Is there hypocrisy in his life? Is he being hypocritical? And to me, there's nothing more hypocritical than for a parent to live one way at home and to live another way in the public eye. I remember years ago, there was someone who used to come in our fellowship here, and he worked in the entertainment industry. And I remember he said, you know, Fernando, uh, I just saw someone here in the fellowship. I recognize that he works in the same industry. I said, oh, okay, great, you know. He says, no, you don't understand. You know, uh, folks on set, they call him God. I go, really, why? Not not because he's so great. It's because he's so self-righteous. What a a bad witness that the world would say, look, that's a self-righteous man. I want nothing to do with Christ if that's who you say you are. How are you living? What do people see in you? Do they see someone who's loving? Who's humble? It's hard for us to do, isn't it? Because we were caught up in this world and we're so distracted. And you know, there's forgiveness in all this. If you've blown it, you've messed up. First John um, chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. All of it. Man, how I need this verse. And he's more than willing to receive us, but it has to be real because he knows our hearts. And so here we are. Nicodemus is asking how. How can a man be born again? And Jesus builds on that. And and Nicodemus asks him another question here in verse 9, which takes us to our final point. You must trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Verse 9. How can these things be? How can these things be? Again, his second question. Now, before he answers this question, which he will in verse 14, Jesus is going to challenge Nicodemus in verse 10 again. Notice here. Are you, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Are you, again, in the original language, aren't you the teacher, the preeminent teacher in the whole nation? And you don't know these things. Now, certainly, I mean, Nicodemus had to know the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
will I cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit. Notice that. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. How about Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. No doubt Nicodemus is aware of these verses and he says, aren't you the teacher of the nation? I mean, aren't you the guy? Aren't you the one the whole nation looks to regarding questions about the Bible? You're the guy. And you don't know these things? My Lord, what a scathing indictment. You don't know these things. And he's pointing out his ignorance. He's spiritually dead. And I can just see Nicodemus reeling from this. Now John has been telling us now for the third time here in verse 11, what we read in verse 3 and verse 5, most assuredly or verily, verily, I say to you, we speak what we know. He's using the same language he used that Nicodemus used on him in verse 2. You know, we know that your teacher come from God. And he says, we speak what we know. We know. And notice verse 12. If, you have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And again, I could just see Nicodemus' brain cells fry at this point. He's been trying to track with him this whole time. And he lays this big whopper on him. Nicodemus must have been asking himself, what in the world is going on? What is he talking about? And who's the we that he's referring to? Well, maybe he's talking about the disciples or Maybe the people who have been following him. Maybe that's who he's referring to. Nope. John chapter 14, verse 8. We, we, we see the, the conversation with Philip, right? Show us the Father. That'll be sufficient for us. And what does Jesus say? Haven't I been so long with you, Philip? Yet have you not known me? He, has seen, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus is going to tell us in, also in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are what? One, we're one. And here he stands before Nicodemus and he says again in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that he is in the heart of the father and simultaneously present before Nicodemus. He's basically saying, I'm living in two worlds at the same time. In other words, Nicodemus, only God is capable of being everywhere. And he is the one standing before you. And Nicodemus, we speak what we know. And there's something very profound here. And Nicodemus is finding out he's bitten off more than when he could chew. No one has ever claimed. No one has ever claimed of coming down from heaven and declaring that he's, going, yeah, that he's there as well. No one has ever claimed that. And Jesus is making this claim. And as you read uh, John's gospel, you quickly realize that he's focused on the deity of Christ, that he is 100% God, and that he's 100% man. 
And he builds on this as he moves through the gospel. You know, and I'm always amazed about how, you know, Jesus meets us where we're at. I love that about Christ. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, for example, when Lazarus dies, you know, he he shows up on the scene and and Martha is struggling. She hears that he's in town. She runs to him and she has this whole conversation with him. And they go back and forth and, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And, you know, it has this discourse with her and, and they have that conversation. Mary hears he's in town and she runs out to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have never died. And what does she do? She begins to weep. And what does the next verse say? He's weeping. And here he, he confronts Nicodemus and, and he's having this theological conversation with Nicodemus and he challenges him where he's at. In his theology. So Jesus is not going to leave him here in his bewilderment. He's going to lead him to somewhere he's familiar with. He's now going to address how can these things be. Notice verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I'm pretty sure Nicodemus knows the story. As a matter of fact, I'll turn to Numbers 21. You don't have to go there, but I'll read it for you. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why? Have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Oh, really? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at the pole shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Again, this is a story I'm sure Nicodemus was well aware of. And he says, how can these things be? And, and Jesus told him he needs to be born again. He can't reenter his mother's womb. And he's struggling to grasp the spiritual. So Jesus gives him the answer in verses 14 and 15. He was referring to his death and resurrection. That he too would be lifted up. Folks, trek with me. The people in the wilderness were bitten by fiery serpents. They're dying, man. They're good as dead. Moses relates to the people the plan to save everyone. Everyone could be saved. And like the folks in the wilderness, we too have been bitten by sin and are dying. And Moses says, we're going to take a bronze serpent, we're going to put it on top of a pole, and we're going to place it in the center of the camp. And bronze, by the way, is symbolic of judgment. And Moses says, listen folks, here's God's plan. Look to the bronze serpent and you will live. You'll be saved. Oh, you say. That sounds stupid. That's ridiculous, Fernando. Really? That's, that's just ludicrous. Let me ask you this. Guess who died? Those who refused to look at the bronze serpent. That's the punchline here. 
They refused. Folks, we have poison running through our bodies. It could be 10, 20, 30, 70 years. Eventually, we will all succumb to it. Nicodemus, if you realize that you too are in the wilderness, that you're in the darkness, you too have been bitten by sin. And all you have to do is trust me. Jesus would say, all you have to do is trust me. You studied the law your whole life. You, you devoted yourself to observe the law. You sit as the teacher in all Israel and you're still in darkness. Your heart aches to know God. And all you have to do is look to the Son of Man and believe in Him. Now, why did God choose to do it this way? I don't know. It's His decision. He can do whatever He wants. It's His choice. But if you really think about it, He didn't make it difficult for us, did He? We make it difficult for ourselves. Please note this important point in verse 15 where Jesus says that whoever believes, that's anybody, folks, anybody. If you're a prostitute, you're an adulterer, you're a druggie, you're a drunkard, you're a candidate. You're the perfect candidate. And all you have to do is the same thing they did in the wilderness. It's the same dynamic. You look. You look to the man judged on the Roman cross on your behalf. You believe. You believe before the venom takes its toll. In verse 16, we have God's motive. The reason God chose to do it this way. Let's go back to John chapter 3. For God, again, how many of us have seen this in football games, baseball games, every venue? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So love the world. Agape, the highest form of love. I, I think Nicodemus found this really interesting because there's no Jewish literature where, where it's mentioned that God loves the world. There are no writings to indicate that. So you can imagine he's sitting there and goes, what do you mean God loves the world? I mean, Gentiles were to fuel the fire of hell. What do you mean the whole world? He says God loved. He understood the, the Greek word agape. God loves the world. And that word for world is the word cosmos. It's found 186 times in the Bible. Impressed? 186 times. But every time it's used, almost every time, the context is usually negative or in a sinful context. That's the world that you and I find ourselves living in. A world full of rapists, murderers, drunkards, druggies, you name it. And God says, I love that world. You and I would say, put me on a different planet. He says, I love that world. Why? Because we live in it. Then he says, God gave. God is the greatest giver. He gave us his son. And notice, salvation is not based on man's efforts or, or man's merits. It is God's gift to the world. We don't earn it, nor do we work for it. That we would have what? Eternal life. And the tense is ongoing. That you and I would experience eternal life now. And we don't have to wait for it until we die or, or we get to heaven. We have eternal life presently. 
Then he says here in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Notice, God didn't send his son to condemn the world. That wasn't his motive. Actually, it was the opposite. The world, as the verse indicates, presently stands condemned. To me, it's like watching the Titanic sink, right? There's a gouge in the side of the ship. That ship is going to go down no matter what. Now, you have the choice to get off or you could stay on. It's not going to change the, the end result. That ship is going down. And that's what this world is right now. It stands condemned. It's going down. The ship is going to sink. So God didn't send his son to condemn the world. And so often we think that, don't we? Non-believer says that God's an angry God. No, he, he loves the world. He sent his son. But we stand condemned already. Notice verses 18 through 21 describes the problem. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved. Notice that loved. That's the word agape. Loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Christ died for man's salvation. But notice, that doesn't automatically save man. Let me say that again. Christ died for man's salvation, but that doesn't automatically save man. The problem with man is not one of inability. The problem is one of rejection. It's not that he cannot. He just will not. Notice, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. God's Son. You know, I'm reminded of a story, a um, true story. While we were in Colombia, uh, these two doctors, they're from Bogota. Uh, crazy, crazy story. Uh, I wish I could share it with you, but I'll, I'll summarize some of it. Um, uh, they have two daughters. One of the daughters, uh, her jaw was starting to protrude and come out, and her teeth were starting to grow inward. And so they were looking and trying to find a specialist. They couldn't find one in their own country, and, and they found one in Spain. Well, uh, we happen to know him. And uh, so they traveled to Spain. They figured, you know what, we're going to move our practice there. We'll live there as as the years go by, and so that he'll treat her. And, and you know, uh, he does. And every time he consults with the family, he'd always share. He says, you know what? These hands could only do so much. I, I can only do so much. But God is the one that can heal her. God is the one that can touch her. But that's all I can do. And every time he shared, he'd always give, give him a CD. And so, and every time he'd come in, he's telling me the story. He says, yeah, he goes, how do you like to study? I go, yeah, it's good. And he wasn't listening to the CDs. And so he felt so guilty that he was lying to him. He figured, you know, I better start listening to the CDs. So he started listening to the CDs. And as, as the process of time went by, you know, what does the scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of God. And so the ball started rolling. And he started to put pieces together and realize, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. He comes to faith. Well, his wife wasn't so receiving. As a matter of fact, she thought he was a radical. At one point, you know, she was hiding the CDs. And she goes, and then she 
telling me the story. And she goes, and I was hiding them in the most difficult places, and he'd always find them. I'm like, how is he finding them? And then she eventually says, you know what? You keep your religion. I'll keep mine. I have money. I'll take care of the kids. You do your own thing. And he's pleading with his wife. So they came to a compromise and said, you know what? Okay, we'll go to the Catholic church and then we'll go to a Christian church. Okay, great. Well, unfortunately, when they went to a Christian church, it was just a prosperity doctrine. So all they did was beg for money. And she would mock them. Ah, oh, see, that's, that's what you're looking for? <laughs> Look, see, I told you. Really? But yet they would go to the Catholic church and it was dead. Well, so they began to, he began to watch services online back in Colombia. And uh, there were several people in the room. And she happened to walk in and, and she's starting to hear the message. And she's in the background and they don't, they don't know she's there. And she gets offended because she begins to reason. He called the pastor and told him everything about us. And she is just incensed. And she finally bursts in the room. She says, I cannot believe that you told all our personal matters to this pastor. How could you? And later on, after this whole episode, she went back to go look at that video and realized it was on YouTube two years ago. At that point, she realized God is speaking to her. The light came on. See, she was content to live in the darkness. And she realized this is too real. God is faithful. He will shed the light. You know, verses 19 through 20, it tells us here that it's the same word, agape, that God uses to love the world, that men love darkness. I find that interesting. It's the same love, the same devotion. Jesus himself tells the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, that I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When he heals the blind man in John chapter 9, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now listen, some of you today are struggling with sin. And the Holy Spirit is shedding light in those dark regions in, your, in, in the inner man. And what does Satan do? And what he does so well is he condemns you. And he loves that because that keeps you in the dark. But the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, let me, let me touch this area. And let me shed some light here for what? Our benefit that we would turn and we would repent. And he's convicting and he's convicting until we repent. He's telling you to turn to keep you from the dark. So the problem is this. Light is coming and light is powerful. But men agape the darkness. They're wholly given to it. Men don't want to come to Christ because their nature says otherwise. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Your own heart will deceive you. You know, I always chuckle when people say, oh, follow your heart. Well, guess who's telling you that? Your own heart. Because it's deceiving you. Jesus puts our nature in full display and he says, it's not because they can't come. It's because they won't come. They love the darkness rather than the light. Let me conclude with this. Here's Nicodemus. He's standing in the light, as it were. And Jesus is dispelling the darkness in his own life. And he's listening to these things. And we're not told after this whether he made a decision for Christ or not. Because we know that... 
uh, in the same chapter, he visits the woman at the well. So we're not told. But we know that later on in uh, John chapter 7, the Pharisees are planning to kill Jesus, right? And Nicodemus, he stands up and he says to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? In John 19, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus shows up again with Joseph of Arimathea, and he's there with a mixture of aloes and myrrh, about a hundred pounds worth, in order to prepare his body for burial. So here's the question. The question is, would you as a preeminent teacher in all Israel sacrifice your career, your reputation over a dead carpenter? Apparently he did. Apparently he did. Folks, you must be born again. You must embrace his plan. You must trust Christ as Savior. There is no other way to heaven. He is the only way. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this passage, Lord. You're so faithful to shed light in those areas, Lord, where we fall so short. And Lord, as believers, we just pray, Lord, if there's areas that we've fallen short and Lord, we would repent, even today. And Lord, follow your leading. And if there's anybody here today, you're hearing this message and you're saying, this thing offends me. But down deep inside, you know these things to be true. Christ is calling you now. And all you have to do is submit to Him and pray. And you could pray after this particular prayer. I'm going to pray right now. You just say, Father, forgive me of my sins. I accept Your Son, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. Help me to walk after You all the days of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.